you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Is that going to go? No, it's not going to go. What the hell's going on? We can't get this opera lady to sing. It won't work. Oh, my gosh. What happened? Oh, my gosh. No one can hear the opera lady. Uh, that's not going to work either. Well, okay. All right. So the opera lady, uh, I guess she's quit or took the day off today, and uh, her soundboard won't work so what do i know maybe we could put that in a post or something so i'll just sing a welcome to chris show.com there you go that's why we hire an operator because my voice sucks uh welcome to the show my family and friends remember the chris Voss show is the family that loves you but doesn't judge you at least not as harshly as your mother-in-law because i don't know she just doesn't like you she never has like had, has like you and you know Everyone probably knows why. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but she wrote me in the show and told you in an email and said to say that. So whoever you are out there whose mother-in-law is writing me, you know who you are. I don't know what that means. Uh, anyway, guys, uh, always refer the show to your family, friends, and relatives. Go to goodreads.com for Chess Chris Foss, LinkedIn.com for Chess Chris Foss, YouTube.com for Chess Chris Foss, and Chris Foss one on the tickety talkety for 15 years and uh, three to four shows a day, 15 to 20 shows a week. We even bring you the smartest, most brilliant people that give you the Chris Foss show glow, that give you the intelligence, the ambiance, the the, whatever verbs that I can't think of right now, just make up in your head. And uh, these folks come on, they share with you all their amazing stories, their journeys, and they brighten your life because as always, as Chris Voss says, stories are the owner's manual to life, and that's what we're here for. Uh, she is the author of the newest book that comes out November 15th, right before uh, Thanksgiving there, eh? And you can give it away for Christmas, so pre-order now and buy extra copies. Um it's called The Essential Questions. Interview your family to uncover stories and bridge generations. Elizabeth Keating, Dr. Elizabeth Keating, I believe, PhD, is on the show with us today. And she's going to be talking to us about her amazing book and all the great stuff that goes inside of it. Um, and uh, we welcome her now. Welcome to the show. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Keating, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here and to be one of your guests and uh, to talk to your audience. Awesome. It's wonderful to have you as well. Uh, you are a professor of anthropology at the University of Texas in Austin and the author of books and articles about language and culture. And uh, so you've written lots of stuff. What made you want to write a book about this subject? Well, that's an interesting story. It's actually a story initially about loss, which everyone has experienced, unfortunately. I lost my mother, and I realized after she died that I didn't know a lot about her besides in her role as a mother. Even though I'd interviewed her a few years before she died, I just at that time was interested in family tree connections. And... Oh. Uh, so after she died and I was going through her things, and you know, that's such an emotional time, 
there were so many questions that came up. What was it like to grow up in her time? And what were the things that happened to her that influenced who she was and then made me who I was? So I mm -hmm. just, and I heard the same thing from other people that, you know, I wish I'd asked my mother this, or I wish I'd asked my grandmother this, my grandfather this. I don't really know what they did and uh, what some of their experiences were. So uh -huh. I, I started interviewing older people who were grandparent age and to try to develop a set of questions. Hmm. I'm an anthropologist. That's what anthropologists do is try to find uh -huh. out about other people and their ways of life. Mm -hmm. So I had a marvelous time interviewing people and came up with 13 questions. And I was having such a good time that I thought, I, I want my students to get in on this. And so yeah. I gave them as one of their semester projects to interview one of their grandparents. And they loved it. They loved the project and they brought back so many interesting stories. You know, you said about stories, how important they are. Well, it turns out older people don't tell very many stories. They think nobody's interested. They think people aren't going to listen to them and, and they're focused on their grandkids. Yeah. So that was, and then I thought I've got to write this book because it's so incredible to find out these things. You think, you know, your family, but, <laughs> but uh, you don't. Is, is one of the 13 questions, am I adopted? <laughs> or 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 why am i adopted i mean you know. it certainly could be but actually the questions are more the kind of questions anthropologists go to the field as we call it to find out about other people's everyday life ordinary life which mm -hmm. it sounds interesting but if it's ordinary life uh, 50 or 60 years ago, it isn't ordinary to us anymore. So I heard stories of people who they remembered when they moved off the farm and got the first flush toilet and they were four years old. And what did they do? They kept flushing it over and over again. It was so. Well, I do that. I do that now. But it might be because I was, you know, at Taco Bell the night before. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and I love this concept and this idea. It really struck me when I saw the thing on your book. Um, with my father, um, uh, in his l later years, uh, we I got the whole family together with some elbow twisting um, and got them together for a picture in front of the house they all grew up in, uh, mm -hmm. or my father grew up in. And uh, uh, it was the last family photo that we ever took. Um, and I knew he was having, you know, all sorts of small heart attacks and strokes and, and his health was declining and he was starting to have some dementia kicked in. And so I started spending time with him and my main objective was kind of what you talked about in your books. When people are gone, there's, you know, you, you can't ask him stuff. I mean, I suppose you can hire a seance or something, you know, Ouija board <laughs> or something, but um, I don't know. Uh, usually I just conjure the devil and that happens. So that's Fridays around here. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I don't know what do you want. Uh, anyway, that's my devil voice. Um, so I sat down with this uh, application. You know, I kind of heard some people doing what you were doing. Uh, some people were doing video interviews or tape interviews of their 
loved ones. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to clear all the decks. So I sat down with them and I said, dad, let's talk about whatever resolved unresolved business you think you have with me. Um, I talked about a few things with him and we cleared the decks. We forgave each other and we kind of, it was kind of interesting too, because he kind of, you know, Oh, I didn't realize that bothered you. And, uh, um, and we got the decks cleared and, and uh, that way that, there wasn't, I, I hope there wasn't anything I wanted to ask him after he left, but, uh, and I think I had gotten everything out of him that I could get out of him. The, the, the sad part was I waited too long, and this is probably a great lesson that you probably teach in your book. I'd waited too long, and the dementia was starting to kick in, and he was starting to tell me the same thing every day. Um, yeah. And so, but we got in the decks cleared, and uh, fortunately, there wasn't much to clear. Um, you know, and, uh, but it was so important because, you know, once they're gone and sometimes people can walk out of your life, they, they don't have to be old, you know, they can have a car accident, they can have whatever happened, but finding out their history and kind of what they went through, you know, a lot of people don't talk about it. You're right. Yes. And it gives you so much understanding of the positions that they hold today when mm -hmm. you understand what kind of era they grew up in and what they were expected, what was expected of them as children is sometimes phenomenal. Going to mm -hmm. work at age 12 to help the family finances and having to drop out of school because there were a lot of kids in the family and they couldn't afford to have one of them not be working and, mm -hmm. and helping out and just a tremendous hardship that uh, previous generations endured that they are very happy that their grandchildren and children don't have that hardship. And mm -hmm. yet at the same time, it also gives them a certain point of view on life <laughs> that once you understand their stories, you can, you can have a lot more empathy for perhaps their, uh, it's how much more difficult it is for them to embrace a certain idea that is, very, very um, uh, popular among the younger generation. So yeah. uh, I've had people tell me that when they sat down and asked their parent or grandparent about the ordinary life back then, mm -hmm. that they really had no idea of what daily life was like. We have a tendency, obviously, to imagine that a lot of people's experiences are similar to our own. In fact, mm -hmm. the psychologists have told us that people tend to overestimate how much they have in common and underestimate how different they are. Mm. And it's, it's amazing, too, when you approach a, a project like this with an anthropology point of view. Because what we try to do in anthropology is we try to get into the other person's point of view. We try to understand what it's like to stand in their shoes, as they say. Mm -hmm. And that's a really interesting process because you have to set aside your own beliefs and your own attitudes and try to imagine what it would be like to experience the kinds of things that you're hearing about. And it's tough, but it's really worth it to, to try to do that and to try to imagine what it would be like to mm. 
uh, have a different type of life. And one of the students said at one point, I, I wish I could have gone back and lived in that time. Wow. So it's, it's a fun endeavor. Do you, do, what, what are some of the benefits that you find people do with it and, and some of the results that you've seen from people having these discussions? Um, do they, do they have, do they get some more dimension of their parents? You know, cause sometimes we think of our parents a little 2d, you know, two dimensional, you know, they're just mom, dad, they've always been there. You know, you think, yeah. you know, their history because your history is their history basically, but you know, they had a whole history outside of you. I remember my father, after he divorced, we'd moved all out, but my father divorced and married uh, mm -hmm. my stepmother, and she had six kids. Uh, we were four kids, but, you know, we were all out of the house, um, and he married a woman who had six kids, and we were kind of all doing our own thing. We were, you know, we were, we were out of the house, so we weren't, you know, it wasn't like one of those dad situations where dad's got two franchises running and all the kids are playing together. Um, and so we really didn't know her family. Um, and it was, it was kind of interesting. Her kids were younger. So we kind of starting over a little bit, um, <laughs> poor bastard. He, he got like, he got four kids out and he went to six and started over. I remember going to his house one time. There's a kid in diapers running around. I'm like, you're a little too old for this. Um, and so am I. So what is going on? Um, but, uh, uh, and I remember when I went to his funeral, it was so weird and uncanny because I saw all the pictures of him river rafting with the other family and like doing all the stuff. And I'm like, it really struck me. I'm like, holy crap, my dad has a life outside of the life he had with me, <laughs> which is, you know, it's kind of weird to think about, but it's true. You're just like, well, duh. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It is true that you, you, I mean, all kids are focused on their own issues and problems. Of course, as a, as a child, you have a lot to, to figure out and a lot to um, adjust to all the time. And you're right. That's what we do. We tend to take them for granted and think, mm -hmm. well, there's their role of mother or grandfather stands out mm -hmm. uh, above all other roles that they have. But once you start to find out about the life that they had, uh, someone told me about a similar experience to the one you had where his father remarried and he got a, a stepbrother who was almost the same age that he was. And he said, and now we were competing for jobs and girlfriends and <laughs> the rest <laughs> of it. And that was an interesting perspective, too, on what these kinds of blended families can involve for the people who experience that. Yeah. And, you know, let me ask you this, though. What if you have somebody like one of the problems I had with my father was my father was a big revisionist history guy. And he was a bit my father was a narcissist, like clinically. Um, and uh, so he would give you revised versions of history and and so you couldn't trust him a lot of times in fact at one point he rewrote his he re, he wrote out his history and i'd hear about someone i'm like that's not that's some you're just making stuff up right now and he's like well you know yeah a little bit of flair to it um and so i could never really trust him at the end i could trust him because he was he was scared and he knew that he knew that it was coming and, and he was just trying to hold on with whatever he could and, and kind of all the 
narcissism fell away. But um, there was stuff he, you know, he just, I don't know if he didn't think it was interesting or we didn't talk about it. And I remember, and, and he was kind of that way where he would shut down over over certain things. I remember we took the family photo in front of the house that they built. I mean, they built the house. They came to Salt Lake City and like, hey, you know, we should get a house. So, you know, most people like us, we just, okay, let's go see a realtor and buy one. They're like, nah, let's build one. You know, and so um, they built this house, and so we took the picture in front of it, and these these wonderful uh, Mexican couple was in there, and they go, "Hey, what are you guys doing?" I go, "Hey, you know, my dad's this is his house he grew up in, blah blah blah," and they're like, "Oh, that's really cool," and you know, you mind if we take this picture in front of your house? And, and they're like, "Yeah, go ahead." And then we got done, and they go, "Do you want to come tour the house?" <laughs> and uh, and I and I had told them. I said, you know, because, you know, weird world. I said, I said, you know, do you know how on the driveway there's there's the Voss name scratched into the cement? It's still there. And they go, yeah, that that's us. Um, <laughs> proof proof that we were there. Uh, there's your anthropology. Um, and so <laughs> we we got a chance to go in the house. And as soon as we walked in, my dad sat down. I, I was worried he was going to have a heart attack or something. But he just looked like shell-shocked. And he didn't know what to say or what to do. But uh, so I couldn't ever get a straight story out of him, and I ended up getting it out of my uncle. Um, and my uncle was on his deathbed and getting there. Um, he'd been sent home to 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 you know spend his last uh, few years or months or weeks. Uh, he lost the bottom half of his heart, and uh, I I had left a message that I was like, "Hey, can you tell me just about what?" what it was like with you growing up so I can get your experience with my dad's. Cause I don't really, my dad won't give me a straight answer. You know, my dad already passed on and he called me up one night at like 2 AM and for four hours, he ran my ear off and told me the whole history <laughs> of my family. It was just extraordinary. And I'm like, you're running on half a heart, but, and so I sat and listened to him and asked questions. He answered all my questions and I was like, wow. And it it was so vast and so rich. And I was just like, no one's ever told me this in 50 years. Hmm. So uh, I can see the beauty of this and what you write about in the book. Yeah. Talking about. Do you want to tease out any of the questions? I guess one of them is, and am I adopted then? <laughs> well, the questions are actually quite descriptive. Mm -hmm. They're meant to elicit descriptions. So mm -hmm. in one case to, um, to link to your topic about the house, they mm -hmm. ask, what was the house you grew up in like? Or what was the home oh. you grew up in like? Yeah. And it's meant to elicit a description. How many bedrooms did it have? What were the bedrooms like? The kitchen who, oh. uh, and the other rooms. And what happens when people start describing the house they grew up in or the apartment they grew up in, all these stories come out that have to do with the different rooms or who was in which bedroom with whom. And you get some really wonderful uh, impressions of what it was like to grow up in that house. And it seems like a very simple question. All of mm -hmm. the questions are very simple questions because mm -hmm. they're very broad questions meant mm -hmm. to give the person talking the most flexibility in how they want to answer it. It's their story. Oh. Let them control the narrative. And I've mm -hmm. had people as they're answering the first question about uh, the, the house, 
and or the home is to say, oh, I'm way off track. And I say, well, that's fine because you want them to associate and to bring yeah. up the things that they remember because memory is, uh, that's a long time ago that they're remembering mm -hmm. things and it, it takes some time. So that's an example of how the, if they want, if they w wanted to talk about uh, difficult things in the house, that would be up to them, but they mm -hmm. could just talk about things like one person told me uh, that she and her brother slept in the same room with her parents. Yeah. And th that was common in, yeah. in certain areas in those days. And she remembers going to sleep to the sound of her mother using the knitting machine. And she recreated that sound. And you were, and that was an interesting memory that just came up because of describing the different aspects of what home was like. And other questions, another question is about what were, what were everyday interactions like? So how are, how did people speak together? Who interacted with whom? And this brought up some interesting answers in the South and in Texas, because mm -hmm. certain people, because of their racial heritage, couldn't, had to get their food from the restaurant out the back window. And there were many instances like that that came up during the conversation about what everyday interactions were like, or people would say children were to be um, seen and not heard. And that's still that, true today too, very <laughs> much so. If you've ever been on a plane or a restaurant. So you get a sense of what a child's uh, life was like. And mm -hmm. so there are other questions too about what were the common uh, rites of passage. Mm. And it's interesting, we don't have so many rites of passage nowadays. Uh, maybe getting a driver's license would be an example. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people have moved away from those age rights that are really common in a lot of societies. But that gives you a sense, too, of what was expected at certain ages. And then question about what were the fears that they had as a child? Mm. So I don't know if you know that the biggest fear of all is... <laughs> is uh, snakes <laughs> yeah for some people huh? <laughs> and another big fear is public speaking so oh. interesting about the fears but cross-culturally of course they're they're really different what what people are afraid of but as a child you know the different things that that you the, the way you created your your own thoughts in your own universe get you get that revealed a, a bit in that question Sometimes mm -hmm. if you were tumbled in the waves and as a kid and uh, then you told the aspect of you, you were just told to get up and <laughs> get back on that horse and brush it off and go. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I um, remember, I remember there was one epiphany I had with my mother where I don't remember what it was. I think I found a picture of her and, or maybe she was talking about one time what her life was like growing up in Buffalo, New York. And, and it, somewhere I just had this epiphany where I'm like, my mom was a young woman at one point, you know? I mean, I've always thought of her as married to my dad, you know, because that's all I've ever known. So, um, and, and, you know, it kind of occurred to me, I'm like, at one point she was a young woman and she could have made better choices than marrying my father, but that's another story. 
um but no it, it it gave me some depth to her and her life and i'm like i'm like wow okay um you know she's she you know it, it adds the third dimension i think to people I, I i do think we see our parents as two-dimensional maybe i don't know maybe yes yes and sometimes you get a glimpse of what the pressures were on women and men in those days mm -hmm. and the limited choices they actually were uh, they had uh, mm -hmm. if they were trying to live up to the expectations, the moral and character expectations of their time. And that becomes really clear that in retrospect, they can sometimes see themselves mm -hmm. and, and they often do say that they're really happy that young people today in the U.S. have so many more choices. Yeah. They are very, very happy to see that uh, that uh, kind of creativity now that's possible. Is one of the 13 questions, am I in your will and what am I getting? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it might, it might come out. But, well, the thing is about getting these interviews going is the relationship that you can create with someone is much deeper than the one that you had. And this came up oh. over and over in the characterizations by the students. They said, you know, I've lived down the street from my grandfather my whole life, and I had no idea of the kinds of experiences he's, ha he's had. And it made us closer and able to talk about a wider range of topics and opinions. Mm -hmm. Because what, another thing about the anthropological approach, and I talk about this in the essential questions, is that you want to be sure to understand their point of view and you want to be sure to get a sense of and be open-minded and show them that you're not going to judge them because the older generation often is afraid to tell about their past because they think we're going to judge them based really? on today's standards. Oh. And if you show them that you're withholding judgment, which is really important, as you can imagine, being an anthropologist, you're exposed to so many different ideas. And if you want people to share ideas with you and opinions, then you need to be very, very non-judgmental and in fact, not participate with your own ideas in the conversation. And once that trust is built, that mm -hmm. they feel that they can open up like your uncle did with you. He yeah. actually had a trust bond with you and mm -hmm. you were able to find out things that are, are very dear to you that help to shape your sense of your family. Yeah. I learned stuff about my family, my great grandfather, my, uh, you know, I'm named after my great grandfather um, and how we came to America in the 1800s from Germany. Um, and, uh, I, I learned how a lot of my aunts and uncles live stories that I'd never heard before. My father never told, I mean, I don't know if my father just didn't care. He was interested or maybe just didn't care. But, uh, I think, I think this is great. Do you recommend that people do this now before, or, or is this an end of life thing? What is the best recommendation for this? Oh, people should do it now, definitely. Mm -hmm. I have had some students who's, who reported that their grandparents were on the beginnings of dementia, but mm -hmm. uh, I think as a lot of people know, when people uh, are experiencing dementia, they can still often remember their childhoods very well. And the yeah. focus is on childhood and adolescence 
in the questions, you know, really finding out what the times were like because culture has changed so much. So you should start right away and it will just open up the possibility of many conversations and conversations that are more meaningful and interesting between mm -hmm. people. Yeah. It's uh it's something that's really important because once the people are gone, like they're they're gone. I mean, I I've had some of my religious friends or family say, Well, we're working out in the afterlife and I'm like, What if you're wrong though? You know? <laughs> <laughs> what if you're wrong? What if uh you know it's it's the it's a big gamble of uh, whether or not, you know, for all you know, you die in Buddhism was the secret word that uh, uh, the Marx brothers knew in his head. Um, so, you know, I love this concept, sitting down. I've seen people do a thing where they do video recordings of their family members talking about this stuff. But, yeah, it, it, there really is a limitation, I think, in most of our minds as children um, where we see our parents as two-dimensional. And then we think that, their experience is our experience. Like they just, they didn't have a life before us or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> their life began when we began and they're just like, well, well, we're parents now. Here's this idiot we got to deal with. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, just thinking about, you know, how my parents were young one time and they were single and they were happy and then they got married, of course, and they weren't happy anymore, um, which I think is a law actually, but uh, that's another story. Um, but no, I, I love this thing. And so, uh, sitting down and getting to know your parents, I imagine can build better relationships too, where you can get to yes, know them as human beings. And one of the questions asked them about what dating was like back then. What, <laughs> what was it like? You know, what were the kinds of courtship, uh, practices and, you yeah. know, courtship is a very, uh, that's a time when we're all really vulnerable. We're trying to make a huge decision without a lot of experience and information, but also society's putting a lot of ideas into our head about what we, we should expect and how sh we should behave. And those change, of course, over generations. And it, it's interesting to hear what it was like in that particular time you know when especially women were were counseled that if they didn't hurry up and get married the field of choice was going to be slim or they were going to be called an old maid and uh, that marriage was the most important part of uh, their dis future decisions yeah plus you didn't live very long back then so you had to move quick yeah, uh, you know, there was, uh, I think the average age was like 40 or something. I remember one of my early girlfriends in, uh, I think we were like 17 or something. We were in high school and her dad was fairly older. And I think she'd, I think they'd had about five kids and she was like at the end of the row there. So they, you know, they kind of had, they've been married for a long time and had kids for a long time. So they, they were kind of an older couple. Um, and I remember looking at him going, you guys are a little too old to have teenagers. You know what I mean? And uh, uh, so he told us a story one time. We were sitting around about how, you know, uh, things 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 are so different now. And the way that they would get to be able to check out girls uh, was they would have to go down to the train station. And they... The only part you could see on women that were exposed with their summer dresses, you know, and the way they dressed it back then was their ankles. 
<laughs> and so that was the attraction of guys back then. Oh, look at her. Oh, she's got, she got great gams. She got great ankles there. Oh, wow. Because that was the only part they could really see that was exposed. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> and I yeah. thought the story stuck with me all these years because I'm just like, are you freaking kidding me? That was your playboy? Like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> They're really different. Yeah. And across yeah. cultures, very different. You know, Texas has a very diverse student body, like a lot of uh, universities nowadays, mm -hmm. where students' parents grew up in a different part of the world. And in some parts of the world, women and men couldn't be seen together in public yeah. unless they were yeah. related. And they, they nevertheless, they, they did devise ways to send notes to each other or to oh, yeah. get, get uh, these furtive conversations here and there. And they fell in love and, and got married. And it's interesting to hear about that because they were terrified yeah. about their reputations being ruined. Yeah, all they had to do was buy Tinder, uh, an iPhone, and get some Tinder on it, and they would have been fine, but I guess, <laughs> I don't know why they didn't have that back then, I guess that's something else. But uh, yeah, it, and it, I, to me, it just builds a better relationship with the, your parents, um, and some of us need a better relationship with our parents. Some of us need to maybe have some more gratitude toward our parents. It can build some gratitude where you're like, wow, my my parents had the demen dimension before me, and they're actually human beings. Yes, that's that was hard for me too. You know, it's so easy to feel beleaguered by their rules and regulations or their supposed lack of understanding of of my generation. But uh, yes, it's a, it's a tough job to have been raised in one set of practices and experiences and have to you know mentor your kids through a whole different set of challenges and. This is especially true with immigrant families where mm. the parents grew up in a, a place where the standards were completely different and yeah. their kids, of course, want to adjust and fit in in the new standards. That's, that's mm. really tough for those kids. Yeah. Plus, you, you, you think about, you know, uh, like with my father, he never talked about where he grew up in Green River. And Green River was like this little... It's a little town. I think it's still a little. I've never been there. Um, but uh, uh, my uncle told me all about it and told me all this <laughs> stuff. He told me about how one of them almost died of something when they were children and some of the little things that they used to do and they get in trouble. And it's all this stuff that he basically told me about my dad's childhood that my dad never talked about. And uh, it was just amazing. And then he told me about how some of my aunts and uncles lived and you know, back then they didn't have rest homes. And so when one of them got dementia, they had to, they just had to take care of them. You know, you just had to take care of them in your house and, you know, try and get them in bed and help them out. And, um, you know, they had the same sort of issues that we had now a little bit where, uh, when older folks got older, somebody had to take care of them and it was family. So you did what you had to do. Um, and it was, it was really great stories. And I, and I think, I think, a lot of times we take our parents for granted, kind of in a compass of, of everything we're saying here. And I think that gratitude is so important because, you know, they are human beings, you know, they're they're, and they, they have their own life and they probably spend half their life looking at us going, what the hell did I do? I, I had a life, man, before this idiot came along. Like what a, 
geez, I could have, I could have, I could have been somebody. I could have been a contender. It's like that whole scene from <laughs> one movie. Um, uh, what are some things on your book that you want to tease out? We haven't touched on. Well, I would like to mention that there's a chapter about interviewing and mm. how, what kind of strategies will um, result in a good interview. Put them so in the, first, do you put them in the police station thing and put the light on their <laughs> face and say, where were you on 19, <sighs> April 9th, 1942? Sorry, I had to do that. That's there. right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good illustration of how, uh, how different interviews can take place. I think one of the most important things that I uh, talk about in that chapter is uh, one of the things that was really hard for me to learn was to shut up <laughs> and, and not uh, talk too much during the interview. Uh, yeah. Because the first interviews I did as an anthropologist, I could hear as I played them back and transcribed them, I could hear all those places where I'd interrupted where the flow was mm -hmm. going, not realizing it at the time. Mm -hmm. And then and later, I wish they, I could have let them continue on that interesting thread. So what I learned was to try to hold a seven-second silence, which for Americans is a huge silence, not necessarily for other cultures, but we always take a silence, meaning something's awkward, something's wrong. We should fill that silence in order to make things more uh, more friendly. Of course, on air, you don't want any silences at all. But uh, interviewing, when you give a person that much time to answer, mm -hmm. if, there's, if they stop talking, then they'll think of additional memories. And it mm -hmm. takes a bit of time to think back and to fill in those gorgeous details that bring a life and a time uh, right vividly um, into the present. And so being able to hold a silence was, was hard for me to learn. And then also not to interrupt and not to uh, put my own opinions. Uh, because in a regular conversation, of course, it's an exchange of ideas and an exchange of points of view. But in this case, you really want to create an environment where, as you described with your uncle, where they do all the talking and you are the grateful listener yeah. and encouraging them by, by questions that are relevant to what they might have left out and you have questions about. But there are many other aspects of interviewing, too, of course, that... Uh, uh, you you want to think about before you get started because getting someone to sit down and spend time you want to respect that by being well prepared and uh, and, yeah. and thoughtful. You just don't want to start winging questions at them and then I don't know yeah and and you're right that how like we I, that was what I learned when I did started doing job interviews for people and we started trying to get better at it so that we didn't hire bad people and so one of the things I would learn is is to ask questions and then shut the hell up and let them talk. And sometimes I, you'd, you'd let them talk and I'd still just be quiet and you just go, mm-hmm. And then, then they go look for something else to say. And 
<laughs> sometimes they'd hang themselves because they didn't give you too much information. But that was what you're after because you're trying to find out if they're psychos or not. You don't want them in your company. And so I kind of learned that um, when we were, when we do the show, unless I can, I got a pound of good joke in somewhere, squeeze it in. Uh, uh, you know, I, for the most part, we want our guests to talk and listen. You know, I can't stand listening to other people's show if they're always interrupting the guest because you want to hear what they want to say. And sometimes there's something that will come out that was great. So I love that interviewing style that you're talking about where you, you try and get people to jog their memory and, I'm the same way too. If I try and remember something, I'll be like, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, there's that one thing too." There, there another thing, and uh, it just can make for such a richer time. Um, do you do? You, what do you think about recording it in any way, shape, or form? Is that is that too much? Does that put people off? Like, oh, I'm on TV now, or you know, maybe I need to watch what I say about whatever. It's absolutely essential to record. People have their own unique precious ways of using language and expressing ideas and descriptions. And so you want to capture that. It's really impossible yeah. to be thinking, to be a good interviewer and thinking ahead to what you should be doing next or asking next, as well as writing down every word they say, which is also impossible to keep yeah. up with uh, the speed of human conversation. So I advise audio recording for sure. And mm. if they're comfortable with it, video recording, but a lot of people mm. aren't going to be comfortable with a video recording and the audio recording is, is okay. I mean, mm. it's essential and it's wonderful because you can listen to the words afterwards and you can, you actually, you can take in a lot more on subsequent listenings. And also you can write, it down. If you transcribe it, it's a great gift for the rest of your family because mm -hmm. it's more accessible than when it's uh, on the page uh, than it is in uh, in an uh, in a digital audio form. And there, it's so easy to record. Most uh, phones yeah. have the ability and uh, make excellent recordings. So yes, it's it's really essential to record. And I, as you were talking about the conversation you had with your uncle, I was wondering if you were able to record it. I wasn't. It happened in the middle of the night, and uh, I'd been playing phone tag with him, and uh, I was checking on how he was. He he'd basically lost the he had he had an MS for most of his life. And, and then he had, you know, it, MS had complicated a lot of different things with him. And he got to the point where only the upper half of his heart was working. And it reached the point where the doctors just said to him, they said, look, just go home, do your garden, enjoy your life. Don't overstress yourself and, and you're buying time. Um, that's just it. Um, you know, you've ran, you've ran the, you've ran the gauntlet. And so he was just kind of pittering about at home and didn't have a lot of energy. And, um, and so, you know, when he would call me, we'd talk, you know, a little bit and he'd have to go cause he'd be tired. And for some reason he called me at 2am in the morning, returned my call one time and he just went on for four hours. And I, I kept saying to him, I was like, are you okay? You need to go to bed. Oh no. He, he was so turned <laughs> He was so lit up from talking about this stuff. I think he just brought him a lot of joy. And so yeah. I just sat there and listened to him. And 
and uh, I wish I would recorded it because I'm not sure how much of it I really remembered. Um, but I, I was I had such a good time listening to it too, and I think he told me things that maybe no one in his family even knew, um, or that anybody did. But it was all about him and his childhood and my father. You know, some of the things that shaped my father. I was like, why was my father, you know, such an asshole or whatever? And he's like, well, you know, he, this is how I kind of was when he was a kid. And uh, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. And and I think, you know, one of them got sick, and I think that shaped them. Um, one of my one of my uncles uh, had some issues with, uh, how do you put this? But anyway, he, he early on lost uh, a boy that he really liked in school. And it really hurt him. And the boy was killed in a train accident or fishing or something. And it really scarred him and messed him up. Um, and uh, that may have led to some of the other issues he had throughout his life. But, you know, hearing stories like that and just what my family was like, it was just, it was extraordinary. But he was so turned on. He was so lit up. I mean, he just, yeah. for four hours, he just kind of went. And I just kind of sat there going, wow, this is really freaking cool. Yeah. And you laid the ground for that by asking him those other times where yeah. he only told you a few things. And it, yeah. it uh, created in him the, the obvious goal of, of helping you to, to fill in some of that information. So that's a really good example of how sometimes nudging people to mm -hmm. share things might take a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's because people aren't sure what it is that you want, or they only know ordinary life, and they think, how can ordinary life possibly be interesting to anyone? And of course, that's exactly what we miss when it's gone, mm -hmm. is ordinary life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and once they're gone, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't take it back. I mean, I know some people believe in the afterlife, but you could yeah. be wrong. So just work on the basis that what if you're wrong? Um, talk to people now and, and enjoy them now. You know, people can, you can get up in the morning, walk right out of your life because, uh, um, because, you know, a car accident or some sort of thing happens or some sort of tragedy or war, you know, there's all sorts of craziness that goes on in the world nowadays. And, and getting to know people, I think it creates a, I, by having a more in-depth perception of them and it, you know, what, what they perceive in their life and what they perceive growing up and how that shaped them. I think it made me understand my dad a little bit better when I talked to my uncle, I think it made me understand some of the things that shaped him and motivations he had and what did it. It gave me a more complete picture, but I love this concept and idea. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, share out with us uh, whatever final pitch you want to do for people to pick up the book and your .com. It's so important to know about your parents and grandparents because then you know how in essential information about what shaped you and how you became the person you are. And it gives you a sense of your place in your family's history. So it's essential and it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to have these conversations with people and to hear their stories. So I would say get started as soon as possible and understand how important it is to ask questions that just ask for a description of a time.
mm-hmm. or just ask about ordinary life. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a very, very rich account of a culture that's gone yeah. and that we have very little idea from history books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There you go. And uh, so thank you very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it, Elizabeth. I highly recommend people pick up your book and learn all the questions and don't make one of the questions, am I in your will and what do I get from it? Um, don't be like that, people. Uh, and uh, all that good stuff. Did we get your .coms uh, before we go out? Yes. Uh, my webpage is uh, elizabeth-keating.com. There you go. Uh, so thank you very much for coming on, Elizabeth. Thanks, my audience, for tuning in. Order the book wherever fine books are sold. Go to Goodreads or uh, Amazon or wherever. The Essential Questions. Interview your family to uncover stories and bridge connections. <laughs> Let me recut that. The Essential Questions. Interview your family to uncover stories and bridge generations. There you go. I'm, learn- I'm still learning to read at 55. Everyone knows I flunked second grade. Uh, thanks to my audience for tuning in. Go to goodreads.com for Christmas, LinkedIn.com for Christmas, YouTube.com for Christmas, and Chris Voss 1. Thanks for tuning in. Be good, Richard. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>